Mrs. Penny Johnson, and you're listening to From Stage to Page, an audiobook podcast devoted to the forgotten stories and memoirs of female performing artists from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. In this episode, we begin with Mura, her autobiography, written by Mura Limpany with Margot Strickland and published in 1991 by Peter Owens. Acknowledgements Many friends and colleagues have helped me with the preparation of my autobiography for publication. In particular, I should like to thank the following. Mrs. Peter Andre, Miss Andre Back, Shirley Lady Beecham, Mrs. Maureen Bishop, Mr. Fritz Curzon, Madame Hélène Galango, Monsieur Émile Gazot, Graham Kay, Madame J. Morleon Loison, Sister Margaret MacDonald of Our Lady of Sion, Mrs. Kenneth Salito, Miss Joan Slater, Mrs. Janet Snowman, and the Library of the Royal Academy of Music, Peter Van Sittart, John Whibley, and Mrs. Sylvia Witz. The extract from the poem Racine by Marcel Jorda on page 142 is published by permission of the author. If the artist gravely writes, to sleep it will beguile. If the artist gaily writes, it is vulgar style. If the artist writes at length, how sad his hearer's lots. If the artist briefly writes, no man will care one jot. If an artist simply writes, a fool he's said to be. If an artist deeply writes, he's mad, tis plain to see. In whatever way he writes, he can't please every man. Therefore, let an artist write how he likes and can. Felix Mendelssohn, 1826 Chapter 1. Mora Johnston It is unfashionable to believe in the power of blood, yet I have often wondered if Russian blood runs in my veins. My Austrian great-grandfather was a lawyer from Würzburg. Herr Kaup was his name, and when he was a young man he was pressured to serve with the Prussian army, a prospect he found so hateful he ran away to England, where, in Devon, he met an Irish girl and married her. Their daughter, Mrs. Robert Limpenny, was my grandmother. She must have talked about the Russia her father had visited, and probably fired my mother with the desire to go there. The Limpenny family were traditionally public-spirited. My great-grandfather was three times mayor of Exeter, and a window in Exeter Cathedral was his memorial from a devoted family and a grateful community. Earlier Limpennies, or Limpennies as they then spelled it, were buried in the churchyard at Liskard over the border in Cornwall. They could trace their descent from Edward I, but they had become impoverished and of necessity had gone into trade. At one time they had been quite successful and had owned three shops in Plymouth selling sports equipment, 
but during my mother's girlhood, these had dwindled to one in George Street. There were five daughters and two sons in the family. The two sons, Charles and Freddie, were worshipped. Everything was sacrificed to ensure their prosperous futures. Charles went to Dartmouth to become a cadet in the Royal Navy, while Freddie joined the British American Tobacco Company and went to the Argentine, where he became director. The only future for the five sisters, Beatrice, Mina, Frances, Ernestine, Madge, was to sit at home and wait for a husband to come along. Till then they had to fend for themselves. Frances, who was clever, started a school in Plymouth. Mina, who was beautiful and devoted to her mother, stayed at home. But my mother, Beatrice, was too spirited to languish in Devon. She taught herself languages and music, and at the earliest opportunity took the long train journey across Eastern Europe to Russia, where she had obtained a post teaching English. The reality of life in Russia transcended the tales Beatrice had heard in her youth. St. Petersburg, in the years before the First World War, was brilliant, for some. It was a society of magnificent assemblies, presided over by the Tsar, the Tsarina, and the imperial court at the Winter Palace built by Peter the Great in 1703 on the banks of the River Neva. My mother had come to St. Petersburg from a provincial seaside town, one of many English women who had literally educated the world. The imperial nurseries were dominated by English nannies. Beatrice had a passion for learning and a vocation for teaching. Her pupils were the three daughters of the wealthy banking Benenson family, Manya, Flora, and Fira. Beatrice Limpenny was conscientious and energetic, and said about her tasks so endearingly the Benensons made a great pet of her. She was never treated as a menial, but as a member of the family, whom she accompanied to the opera and the ballet as a matter of course. There were parties galore, skating parties in winter, when the temperature was below freezing for many months of the year. It was magical skating along the many inlets and waterways that crisscrossed the river Neva, strung together with innumerable bridges, and on the banks in the cold light glittered golden spires and cupolas among the pastel-colored buildings. It was a dream city, described as music set in stone. The society to which the Benensons introduced my mother was worldly, elegant, and cultured, in sparkling contrast to her restricted social circle in Plymouth. She enthusiastically embraced everything Russian, the language, the literature, and, above all, the music, for which she conceived a passion that was to last all her life. The Benensons constantly begged her not to practice so much at the piano they had put in her room. So happy was my mother in this milieu, far from home, that she persuaded her sisters, Mina and Frances, to join her in St. Petersburg, with equally happy results. They taught the entire aristocracy, and were well rewarded by their employers. At the height of the First World War, in 1915, 
London was thronged with troops being sent off to the trenches in France. Many did not return. Those who did were shell-shocked, gassed, wounded. Tommies in their hospital blue sang songs like Keep the Home Fires Burning by Ivor Novello among the well-tended flower-beds in High Park, thankful to be alive and away from the horror of the front. At one Hyde Park gate, across the Bayswater Road, Lady Hamilton, daughter of the Dowager Marchioness of Deanston, with her helpers, sorted out the gifts and poured in, in response to her appeal for khaki shirts, socks, writing paper, woodbine cigarettes, and tins of condensed milk to send to the troops fighting under her husband, General Sir Ian Hamilton's command in the Dardanelles. Halfway down Park Lane at Grosvenor House, Lady Townsend had instigated the popular recreation of afternoon teas for officers. The men in tailored khaki uniforms, polished Sam Brown belts and shoes, and naval officers in dark blue serge, brass buttons and gold braid, sipped fragrant tea from porcelain cups and nibbled sandwiches and homemade cakes. Accompanying the tinkling of the china and the genial chatter of the men was a petite lady playing a darkly polished grand piano raised upon a dais. When she had finished her piece, polite applause greeted her performance. She bowed, slipped an opulent white fur coat over her shoulders, and left the stage. Beatrice Limpenny had come home from Russia. The white fur coat was a farewell gift from the Benenson family. She was now thirty-five. Among the audience one day was a tall, handsome officer, also aged thirty-five, one of a contingent of Australians in London who had fought in the Dardanelles, covered himself with medals, and was now on a well-earned leave. He was not, however, an Australian himself, but English. He had run away from home and school in his teens, and joined the army as a private, was bought out by his father, and escaped a second time, making sure he would not be so easily recaptured by boarding a ship to Australia. He dreamed of buying a farm, fell into the hands of unscrupulous moneylenders, lost all he had, together with his expectations under his grandfather's will, and worked as a laborer. On the outbreak of war, he joined the Austrian forces and was duly commissioned a captain. His name was Captain John Johnston. Beatrice was a resourceful, practical, intelligent, and versatile woman who had earned her living from an early age. By the time she met John Johnston, she could speak, read, and write seven languages, and she had a business brain, too. She had wisely invested her savings in private houses in Devon, living in one and renting out the other, too. She was by this time longing to marry, chiefly because she yearned for a child. "'If I don't marry soon,' she declared to an astonished friend, "'I shall have an illegitimate baby.' This was unlikely, since she came of a most correct, prudish, devout Roman Catholic family. Captain Johnston was the fifth child and second surviving son of Dr. John Johnston Salcombe Johnston of the village of Sandhurst just outside Gloucester. 
He had been educated at the Benedictine Ampleforth College in Yorkshire. He was one of thirteen orphan children who were proud of their family's history. They were of the clan Johnston of Annandale, insistent that their surname should be spelled with a T and an E. Charles II had created the earldom of Annandale in 1662 in Dumfrieshire. Several of John Johnston's forebears had spent fortunes trying to prove they were the rightful heir to the extinct earldom of Annandale, but had failed. John Johnston's elder brother Bede was a commanding figure with a striking Wellington nose and a monocle. After training at Sandhurst, he was launched on a distinguished military career. He had married into a family from Leamington Spa. John himself was charming, reckless, and feckless. He was an adventurer, and although he walked tall and had a princely manner, he had nothing behind him but his name and background. He would sell anything he was given for ready cash with which to get through the day. He had no thought for the morrow. His grandfather, Dr. George Johnston of Ecclefechan and Edinburgh University, had come to Gloucestershire from Scotland, fallen in love with an heiress, Mary Salcombe, and married her. In her white fur coat, Beatrice must have looked rich, and John Johnston embarked upon a rapid courtship. By the time he met Beatrice, he was something of a Don Juan, and Beatrice was soon mesmerized by his charm and fell in love with him. Did she propose to him? He warned her that he was a good-for-nothing and had no money, but she replied that it did not matter, as she owned three houses. He cautioned her that he was not made for marriage, but she brushed all his protestations aside and together they went to Devon to meet the Limpenny family, and then to Bristol to meet what was left of the Johnstons. John's mother, Gertrude, and father had died, and the younger children were cared for by a hated housekeeper. That was why John had run away from home. Their uncle and guardian, Vincent Mather, from Manchester, met John and his fiancée Beatrice on one of John's leaves from the front. John and Beatrice were soon married, and set up home in one of Beatrice's three houses at 10 Barn Park, Tainmouth, before John rejoined his regiment and returned to the trenches in France. On 18 August of the following year, 1916, at one of Beatrice's other houses, at Saltash, their first child and only daughter was born, two weeks earlier than expected. When it came to choosing a name for me, my parents had only one choice, Mora. John's grandmother had been Mary Salcombe of Gloucester, and his mother was called Gertrude. Therefore, on the birth certificate, I was registered as Mary Gertrude Johnston. But from the moment of my birth, as my mother had vowed from her love for Russia, I was always called Mora, the Russian version of Mary. I was born under the astrological sign of Leo the Lion. I was very strong and throve with extraordinary speed. I was also hypersensitive and easily startled by sudden noises, felt the slightest change in temperature, and was terrified of dogs, horses, the dark, and ghosts. 
When I was nine weeks old, my mother wrote to her Aunt Susie from 4 Atlantic Road, Newquay. I am so pleased to say that my darling babe is growing well. The weather continues so beautiful, and we can sit out every afternoon by the beach. We had to go to the doctor's about the vaccination, and his wife said she never saw a baby at Moore's age so intelligent as she laughs and tries to speak. Nurse declares she will be teething in a week or so. She goes regularly to church, and one of the nuns stopped me and said I was spoken of as an example to mothers for bringing their babies to church. Tainmouth was a delightful place for small children to grow up in. The Devon air was soft and balmy, as gentle as the sea waves lapping the sheltered southern shores. Further inland, Dartmoor, with its mystical atmosphere and grey-brown wild ponies, provided an ever-present magnet for excursions and rambles. My grandmother spoiled me. She lived at 10 Carlisle Terrace, Plymouth, and I was often at her house to be treated to all the Devonshire specialties, crab soup and clotted cream and scones, which I devoured with a hearty appetite. The hoe was a vital element in stimulating my imagination, with tales of Sir Francis Drake, Queen Elizabeth I, and the great battle of the Spanish Armada. Uncle Charlie and his wife were better off than we were. My beautiful cousins Peggy and Pat were older than I was, and seemed like creatures from another planet. They attended expensive boarding schools, and were later presented at court. I was never envious of them. I always accepted the fact that they had everything of the best because their father had a very good position, whereas my father had not. That was how life was. What I was best at from an early age was playing the piano. My mother taught me my right-hand notes. Quite young I played with some force, trying to get more out of that little old parlor upright piano of my mother's than it was able to give. I was trying not to play loudly, but to make a more effective sound than my small body could manage. At the age of six, all I cared about was my doll and my piano. I tried to compose tunes, too. She thumps, complained my father when he came home on leave. Once when my mother was trying to teach me to dance the dying swan, which she had seen Pavlova dance in St. Petersburg, he came into the room as I was fluttering my hands as prettily as I could, and remarked, "'Mora dances like a cow.'" When the war was over, and the armistice declared, my father was at home all the time, and unemployed. After all his adventures overseas in the excitement of battle and the glory of uniform and the medals, he found domesticity stifling. He resorted to selling insurance for Sun Life of Canada. He was not good at selling insurance, but earned enough for him to continue. With the idea of selling insurance to the members, he joined the local golf club, spending long hours on the links, followed by even longer spells at the 19th hole. He had a real talent for the game and won many silver cups and trophies, but he quickly sold them for ready cash. My mother, ever industrious, taught the cello, the piano, Russian, German, and French. She tramped about all over the place to earn a few shillings. It hurt me, and still does, to think of how hard she worked for us. 
She ran the house with the help of a young French girl, an early au pair, who wanted to learn English. She spoke only French to me, which is why I learned to speak French before I could speak English. When I was four years old, my brother Anthony was born, and two years later, Joseph. I adored them and loved helping my mother and the French girl look after them. My mother was so often working, I was like a mother to them myself, bathing them, dressing them, feeding them, playing with them and teaching them. Tony was tall, fair, handsome, lively. Joseph was the image of my father, beautiful but serious and honorable. My mother was deeply mortified by my father's incessant sponging. He would beg from anybody and everybody he met. From his generous elder brother Bede, he would catch an overcoat, gloves, a cane, and at once sell them. My mother confided to me that she dreaded his meeting her friends on account of this embarrassing behavior. He was shameless. Why did she not leave him? I asked. Oh, but I had three beautiful children, she replied. The truth was that she loved him. But as we children grew and the depressing twenties progressed, she worried constantly as to how she was going to educate three children. Her brothers offered help financially with the boys' education, but what about me? As a good Catholic, my mother read the periodical The Catholic Times, and one day the solution seemed to present itself when she saw advertised in its pages a convent boarding school for girls in Belgium whose fees were five pounds a term. Almost without hesitation, she had written to the convent, I had been accepted, and with a label tied to my coat buttonhole proclaiming who I was and my destination during the Easter holidays in 1922, when I was six years old, my mother and I boarded the train for Dover. I was put on the boat, bound for Ostend, and waved a sad goodbye to my mother. I already spoke French fluently, which helped me on the journey, and I was not frightened of traveling the relatively short distance by sea on my own. I had never been away from my mother and little brothers, and had never gone anywhere beyond Plymouth, but when one is a child one accepts what is one's lot. I did just as I was told. I was a stout little girl, and had been taught good manners by my mother, and although when the boat put to sea the grey waves rose and fell ominously and the boat rocked alarmingly, causing my stomach to heave, I clamped my mouth shut. I was not, and never have been, seasick. When I arrived at Ostend, among the many persons crowding the decks, I was confronted by a middle-aged man who announced himself as Monsieur Oretz, the brother of Sir Leonarda of the Convent de Sœur de Marie at Tongres, Tongeren, in the Lombourg province, the school where I was to be a pupil. Monsieur Oretz took me by the hand and led me to the train for Brussels. 54 Avenue du Ver Chasseur, Oucle, a suburb of Brussels, was his address. I was amazed at the luxury of his house. I had never seen anywhere like it in my short life. Monsieur Orez was the richest member of a large family of jewelers whose premises were in the boulevard Adolphe Max. The other members of the family lived almost next door to each other, 
and were all jewellers in the Rue Aubert, just off the Grand Place, whose facades glittered with gold in the spring sunshine, dazzling my eyes. Madame Delmotte lived at twenty-eight, and her sister-in-law, Madame Mievy, at thirty-two, and her sister-in-law, also Madame Mievy, at forty-four. I at once made friends with Suzanne Ores and Jean Mievet, her cousin, and their parents made Le Petite Anglaise most welcome. I was overwhelmed with kindness and love. I was neither homesick nor lonely in the comfortable embrace of these four friendly families. They treated me as one of their children, and their children treated me as a sister. I loved them, and they loved me. I was an affectionate little girl, and they were demonstrative. When I left the house, say, number 28, to go to number 44, Rue Aubert, even for a short while I would kiss Madame Delmotte goodbye. On my return, kisses were exchanged once more in greeting, and it was just the same when I arrived and left the family Nievi at number 44. These were not empty, superficial formalities." I felt completely secure in their real love and care for me. There was a piano in the dining room of number 32, Rue Aubert, and I was always sitting at it, practicing the scales and short exercises my mother had taught me, and making up tunes of my own. During meals, when I had finished one course, I would glance longingly at the piano and ask, Puis-je aller jouer? The family readily gave me permission, and I would good-naturedly continue with their meal accompanied by my playing. My mother had already decided that the piano was to be my career, but she told the school she wanted me to learn the harp or the violin, too. "'You will never earn your living playing the piano,' she warned me. A harpist or violinist could usually find employment in an orchestra.' The Easter holidays over, Jean, Suzanne, and I went to the convent at Tongres, the oldest town in Belgium, dominated by the statue of the great national hero Ambiorix. Sir Leonardo, Monsieur Ores's sister, took charge of me. I was excused most of the ordinary school curriculum in favor of the piano and the violin. My first piano teacher, known to everybody as Miss was strange to relate an Englishwoman. I never knew her name. I got on by leaps and bounds, even though when I was taught the left-hand notes and some primary works for two hands, I protested, I shall never be able to play different notes in different hands. I loved practicing the piano, and it is thanks to the nuns that I got on so well with my music. They realized I had an uncommon gift and did everything to help me. For instance, every evening from five to seven o'clock was study time for the girls, but I was allowed to practice instead. At these times I would take the other girls' sheet music from the shelf where it was kept and sight-read everything I could get hold of. At examination times, Sir Leonarda would give me the chapter of history and literature from which the questions were set. I read them, and I nearly always came first. The fact was I had a good memory and learned very quickly. I had an avidity to learn, a great thirst for knowledge, 
and a curiosity about everything. The piano examinations took place before the jury central in Liège, about an hour's journey from Tongres. I was never nervous of them and passed them easily, but the violin examinations were a different matter. I did not like learning the violin, had no aptitude for it, and when in the music room for violin practice played instead the piano accompaniments. But I had no problems passing the piano examinations. It soon got round the convent and the town that there was this little English girl who played the piano very well. One of the visiting masters at the convent was a Monsieur Edmond Jaminet, an erudite man of means, a retired lawyer, a poet, dramatist, musician and composer now in his seventies. He came to the convent to teach the girls drama. He was astounded when he heard me play, and I often played for him alone. Darling bon papa, I called him. I was pressed into service to play for gymnastics, or to accompany the choir, or the play under the rehearsal. It was never a chore, and I loved it. By the time I was nine years old, I was practicing five hours a day of my own volition, far too much for a small girl, and I began to suffer from migraines. I played alone in the convent's grand salle. In the summer, the nuns would try to get me away from the piano into the sunshine, but I could not be torn away from the piano. Once I was playing all one hot afternoon, when I heard a noise at the window in front of me. I jumped off the piano stool and ran to look out, but could see nothing and nobody. Back to the piano I went and continued practicing. Again I heard the noise at the window, as if stones were being thrown up at the glass panes. I looked round me for the first time and, aware of the awesome giant space of the grand salle behind me, suddenly became frightened and rushed out into the garden to find the dear nuns laughing and hiding from me. They had lured me out into the sunshine at last. Bach, Bach, and again Bach, Rubinstein used to say. From the age of seven I was playing Bach, the two-part inventions and so forth, and always moving on to something more difficult, until I could play all the forty-eight preludes and fugues. By the time I was nine years old, I had passed all my piano examinations, and my English, Miss, had been succeeded by a Belgian, Madame. One day she played us a piece of music which fascinated me, telling us that the student who passed her academic examinations with the highest marks would be allowed to study it next. I was determined to study that piece. I won, and I did. It was Liszt's Polonaise in E major. I was nine and a half. Monsieur Jaminet was so proud of me he commissioned a plaster cast of my right hand to be made and presented it to me to keep for posterity. And now I was taken by a nun twice a month for special extra lessons with Professor Jules de Beuf of the Conservatoire of Liège. These were paid for by my dear family of jewelers in Brussels with whom I spent my school holidays. Their generosity and kindness were endless. Madame Dalmotte bought me good clothes, and, as she loved to sew, she made me beautiful silk dresses by hand, trimmed with Brussels lace. The lessons in Liège were very exciting occasions for me. 
After the journey from Tongres, one of the nuns who had escorted me would take me to the patisserie bot, where we would drink coffee and feast on the delectable pastries for which they were famous, before going to the conservatoire. Professor de Bevre was an excellent tutor. He had composed and published a book of exercises, and he started me on my first really substantial work, the Mendelssohn Piano Concerto in G minor. About this time there was to be a great celebration in Tongres, the 700th anniversary of La Vierge Noire, the Black Virgin. Queen Elizabeth of Belgium was to visit the convent. Monsieur Jaminet composed a special song, Onze Croquis, Our Little Bells, for the choir to sing to Her Majesty. It was suggested that La Petite Anglaise should also play a solo for the Queen. Of course, I had read about kings and queens, but they had little reality for me, inhabiting some sort of fairyland, and I could hardly believe that I was to play the piano for a real queen. I was very excited at the prospect, and practiced even harder, morning, noon, and night, ignoring the painful migraines that beset me. Madame Dalmotte arranged for my best pink silk dress, black patent leather shoes, and white silk socks to be sent out to the convent, with pink silk ribbons to be tied round my fine, long-plaited hair. My front teeth had grown slightly crooked and crossed one over the other. However, as I was always laughing and smiling from high spirits and joie de vivre, there was no hiding them. The day before the great occasion, I was summoned by the Reverend Mother to her study. I would not be playing for the Queen after all, she told me, adding gently, It might turn the head of one so young. The choir was to sing in procession through the streets of the town, while four boys, dressed as pages, would carry two poles on their shoulders, from which hung two large brass bells. Wearing a long white dress and a white bandeau round my head, I would be allowed to strike first one bell, then the second bell in accompaniment. Thus early did I learn from the nuns of Tongres a valuable lesson in humility.' 